Father, would you be with us this morning as we do our best to unpack your words? God, would you send your spirit to make sense of them to us, to help our minds and our hearts live differently? Would you help us be conformed to the image of your son? Uh, again, not only in our thoughts, but in our um, life, in the way we live, in the way we interact with others, with our neighbors, with our friends, with our family. God, we need you. We ask that you would meet us this morning in your word. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Well, open up to the book of Revelation. If you're not already there, it's the back of your Bible. Starting, We're going to start in chapter 8. We're going to look at chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 today. No problem, right? Uh, we've known that we're going to go through, as, as a church, collectively, that we're going to be walking through the book of Revelation, all 22 chapters. About It's been about a year since that was on the calendar. And when I saw that on the calendar and I saw when we get to week 5, which is today, I said, okay. Um, not only because of the content of what we're going to be covering today in this apocalyptic literature and some of the language and imagery is strange to us as modern readers, but also the breadth of which we're trying to cover in a 35-minute span of four chapters of probably the most complicated book of the Bible, right? Um, and so in the midst of that, as I've been studying the book of Revelation to preach through it, um, and I've told some of you guys this, but uh, I, I've read Revelation in, in my time as a Jesus follower. I've studied Revelation, but I've never studied it to teach it or preach it. And so as I've been digging in every single week, I just feel like the Lord is meeting me in fresh ways. I feel like I'm reading my Bible for the first time as I'm studying it deeper and richer because it's such a complex book. And I just feel like every single week the Lord is meeting me. And as I sit and I study it, and many of you know and pray for me on Thursdays, that's the bulk of my time when I really slow down to really get into the text and say, God, what do you want me to say? What do you want us to hear as a community on Sundays? Because again, the challenge is like, how do you walk through four chapters of Revelation in 35 minutes? And so as I've been sitting there, and I feel like I'm, I'm feasting on God's word every single week, and then I feel like I come up here on Sunday, and I go, oh, here's a crumb for 35 minutes. I feel um, selfish that I'm getting to sit in uh, the Bible and the scriptures as much as I am. And so as I sit in that space, especially on Thursdays, my only hope is to sit and to pray and go, God, what do you want me to say? What do you want us to hear? And so my hope this morning is I'm going to walk through a little bit more thematic of the text. So we're going to be uh, uh, summarizing big chunks of the text so that we can kind of get at what I feel like God is pressing into us as a community. Because some of you, man, I know well, and I'm in your stories, and I'm hearing your struggles, and I'm hearing your joys. And then some of you I've never even met. And that's okay too, but in a wide variety of everybody that meets in the midst of a Sunday morning going, God, you have something for every single one of us. You're able to change our hearts by the power of your spirit and the power of your word. And so that's my hope and desire this morning as we look at these four chapters, we will get a sense and an idea of what does God have for you today? That you would be changed as we walk out of this room, we'd all be more formed into the likeness of the person of Jesus. That's the hope for us 
this morning. And if you are joining us for the first time, we've, we've used this language, we'll continue to use this language just to give us framework for Revelation because it's a hard book to read. This isn't the only purpose of Revelation, but we've been using this language again just to give us some handlebars on how to understand it. And it's this, the purpose of Revelation is to disciple Christians to disciple Christians to be discerning, dissonant worshipers and witnesses of Jesus. We saw last week, chapter 6 and 7, the opening of the seals and God's judgment, his righteous judgment coming down on the wicked in the midst of it. And we're going to continue in that theme, looking at these seven trumpets. Eventually, in chapter 15, we'll look at these seven bowls. And for some of us, this is hard for us to understand, wrap our minds around, because we go, how can a totally just God that's not going to continue to let evil reign, uh, he's going to crush evil, how, how can that be the case? But then he can also give mercy. What does that look like in our lives? And what does that look like in the text? my first R-rated movie ever watched. Don't judge my parents, okay? Uh, Because it was on TV, and back when you used to watch TV, they would cut out all the bad parts of the movie, which made the movie very, very uh, short. This movie, it was the movie The Terminator, 1984 classic with Arnold Schwarzenegger. If you haven't seen the movie, it's about AI. The machines begin to take over and they fight against the humans. And so uh, what the computers do, the AI do, they, they send a Terminator back. He looks like a human. It's Arnold Schwarzenegger's character. But inside he's a machine and he's a killing machine. And he comes after Sarah Connor, who is pregnant with John Connor, who is going to be the leader of the resistance against the machines. So the machines say, hey, if we can send this Terminator back to to kill Sarah Connor, then we'll win the war. And in the midst of this movie, you just see Arnold Schwarzenegger's just coming and coming and and he keeps attacking every single time because he is a machine. And this is how sometimes we feel about evil. Even in our own personal lives, wickedness, things that we're struggling with, it just keeps showing up and we think we put it to death and then it shows up again. But at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, you're not going to watch it if you haven't seen it, it's 40 years old. (laughs) They end up killing the Terminator when he comes into this factory and then he gets crushed by this hydraulic press that just crushes him to death. And what we're going to see in the Bible is that God eventually will crush evil. He will put it to death. And so as we've seen his execution of judgment come out in these seven seals, and we're going to see it in the seven trumpets and in the seven bulls, it's important for us to remember that there's debate even in Revelation on these things. There's debate of like, okay, um, is this progressive? Is it seven seals, then seven trumpets, then seven bulls? Um, and is it in order? Did this already happen? Is it something that already happened in the past and it's execution on Nero and Rome? Is it, is it happening currently? Is it going to happen in the future? I don't know. And there's room for all types of interpretations of that, those viewpoints. And I care less about the timing and more about like when God's execution of judgment comes, even in your own life, even at the evil of your own life, what do you do? What do we do with that? How do we reconcile that? That's what we're going to talk about in these four chapters with these seven trumpets. I like the way that Nancy Guthrie puts it in her book, Blessed on Revelation, which is a good book. It's an easy read if you're interested in continuing to learn more about Revelation. She says, let's not focus on the things we don't know. Let's focus on the things we do know. 
And so we're going to walk through, if you're taking notes and you want to write the big idea of these four chapters together, talking about these trumpets and God's execution of judgment on the wicked, here's the big idea this morning. To whom are you bound when the trumpets will sound? So the trumpets of God, judgment, executing um, judgment on the wicked world. Who are you bound to? Who are you connected to? Who are you following in the midst of those things happening in our life and finally happening in the last days? So let's pick it up. Again, I'm going to be reading some chunks. I'm going to be summarizing a, a big chunk and kind of pulling out, like, what is John trying to do here with his language? And so just so you know, it's not going to be as lined up as uh, we normally are able to go through the text. But let's pick up where we left off last week. So we finished Revelation 7. We talked about the six seals being open. We, we waited for the seventh because it's kind of a bridge between these two uh, sections. So Revelation chapter 8, let's read verses 1 through 5 together. It says this, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. And we could just stop there and do a whole sermon based on that one verse because the angels are singing holy 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 they've been doing it for eternity and then it stops and it's silent building this anticipation for what's to come verse 2 then i saw the seven angels who stand before god and the seven trumpets were given to them and another angel came and stood at the altar with golden a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on a golden altar before the throne verse 4 and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel and the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it on the earth and there were peals of thunder rumblings flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Let's keep reading. Verses 6 through 7. It's not um, on the screen, but you can look down at your Bibles just for these two verses uh, because now we're going to get into the seven trumpets. Verse 6. Seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared to blow them. Verse 7. Then the first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. We can understand the last part of that verse, living in Phoenix, for sure. So I just wanted to give an example of the first uh, trumpet that is sounded. This language is consistent, although the details are different. In, uh, as we continue down in the text in uh, uh, chapter 8 and bleeding into chapter 9, the first trumpet is about hail, which we just read. The second trumpet is about blood. The third is about poison water. The fourth is about darkness that covers the earth. And then the fifth is about these demon locusts that are just wild. I mean, these, these are great stories if you read your kids' Bible stories at bedtime. Like, just try this on. Just, just oh, you want to read a Bible story? Just go to Revelation uh, chapter 8 and 9, and, and, and then let's look at this sixth trumpet. You could, you could try it. That's a joke. Don't do that with your kids. It's, I don't want somebody, I'm going to get emails after this, that comment. Um, uh, let's look at, let's skip all the way down to chapter 9, starting in verse uh, 13. This is the sixth trumpet. It says, Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. 
saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great rivers Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, the year, who were released to kill a third of mankind. Remember, mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw their horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates of the color of fire and sapphire and sulfur. And the heads of horses were like lion's heads. And the fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. By the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses was in their mouths and their tails. For their tails were like serpents with heads. And by means of them they would wound. So again, let's keep it in big picture. God's judgment on a wicked world of wickedness across the land. He is uh, unleashing this judgment in these seven trumpets. We just looked at the sixth in brief, but let's go back to the first five. Because I think it's helpful for us because it's such confusing language and we're not used to it. But again, the original readers, we looked at chapter 2 and chapter 3, that this letter was written to churches in Asia Minor. Seven churches that were real places with real problems that echo out into our problems even today. How would the original readers hear about these plagues? Well, especially the first five plagues. They would be very familiar because their ears would have perked up when they heard this because if you're familiar with the biblical story, which they would have been, and steeped in the Jewish narrative of the Old Testament, they would have gone, wait a second, hail and locusts and blood. Like I've, I've heard plagues coming in this way before and they would go back to the Exodus story. And if you're not familiar with the Exodus story, it, it does, it's helpful for us to go, okay, just for a second, let's, let's root ourselves in how the original hearers would have heard this letter, and they would have understood what was going on in the Exodus story. And in Exodus, if you're unfamiliar, Joseph, the leader of God's people, dies at the very beginning of the chapter. A new pharaoh comes in and takes over, and he doesn't like what he's seeing because the Israelites, God's people, they're kind of multiplying, and, they're, and he realizes, man, they can take us over if they want. It's the movie Bugs Life, if you're familiar with Pixar. It's the same concept, right? And so what do they do? Um, the Pharaoh starts kind of enslaving God's people to the point in the very beginning of the story where he goes like, any Israelite boy that is born, we are going to kill him. We're going to throw him into the Nile River and drown and kill him. Because we need to control this population because he's based in fear in the midst of his domination culturally. And so what God does is he sees that his people are crying out to him. You see it at the end of Exodus 2, that God's people are crying out. And if you see the language in Exodus, what does God do? It says he hears their cries or he sees them. He has compassion on them and then he moves to action. It's the same pattern we see in the person of Jesus and God across the Bible. And so because of that, he sends somebody, somebody named Moses that he picks out and he specifically calls and, and uh, sends to go and confront Pharaoh. And Moses is like, I don't want to go confront Pharaoh. And he's like, you're going to go confront Pharaoh. So he ends up going and in the midst of it, he has this confrontation with uh, Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 5. And Pharaoh responds in this way. He goes, this you're saying I have to let these people go? These are God's people? I don't know this God, number one. And then the second thing he says is like, take people away from their work? There's no way I'm going to do that. 
Because one, Pharaoh is treated like a god in the culture. He gets to say what happens. Two, he's going, there's, there's this idol of productivity and power in Egypt at the time, and he needs these people to maintain that idolatry. Take them away from their work. No. So what does God do? He sends 10 plagues upon Egypt to eventually release his people from their captivity. The Bible Project uses helpful language here. If you're familiar with them, they say this about the plagues. He says, uh, and about Pharaoh. He says, Pharaoh is not only doing bad things, he is fundamentally misrepresenting the rule and character of God. So when God brings the 10 acts of decreation, those are the plagues, upon Egypt, God says it's a judgment against Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. This isn't a run-of-the-mill human stupidity or simply poor decision-making, talking about Pharaoh. Pharaoh and Egypt represent the height of corruption and rebellion, partnered with spiritual rebellion. Pharaoh represents the snake an archetypal foe of God among the nations. There are times when God deals with severe justice with human evil, and you learn something about someone's character from how they respond to really horrendous evil. So as the original hearers of Revelation would have heard these plagues, it would have echoed back to the Exodus story going, oh, yeah. And again, what the Bible Project says, I think this is helpful language, it's not on the screen, but uh, understanding the plagues rooted in the biblical story is really helpful. Because again, we read it and we go, man, this seems random. Why is God uh, turning the Nile into blood? Just to scare the people? But it's not random in Exodus 7 when that first plague comes. Uh, It's to transform the Nile into blood echoes back to the innocent blood of the Israelite boys drowned in the Nile by Pharaoh in Exodus 1. Pharaoh filled the river with dead bodies, and now their blood cries out to God. And the Nile was the lifeline of Egypt. It was the primary source of water for human provision, livestock, agriculture, and consequently, it fueled its economy. And because of this, the Egyptians found their, their, their source and saw the Nile as a deity, and Pharaoh was the God who exercised control over the Nile. And what God is doing in this plague is he is helping people understand that he is in control of the things they think they're in control of. So every one of the plagues is a call back to the original way that God created things when you begin to study. The same thing is happening true here in Revelation. And when God pulls back common grace, like he does in Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, Paul is saying like, listen, you want to worship idols? I'm going to let you. And he pulls back his common grace from people. And when we follow idols, it will be destructive for us every single time. So when God either pulls back his common grace and he gives us what we're asking for, or he intentionally executes judgment on the wicked, every single time he's doing it, it's with a purpose. It's with intention for us to understand truth. This is what's really happening. You're blinded by these things that you're chasing, that you're following. Let me help you see what's actually happening. And Romans chapter 118 says, we suppress the truth 
And God desires for us to know truth. And sometimes to know that truth, for God to get our attention, pain is involved. Suffering is involved. Right? Like if I'm a really good parent and I have a toddler and I see them run through the street and I see a car coming, it makes most sense for me to grab that toddler, even if I have to break their arm to get them out of the way of harm of a truck. Even if it's painful, God sometimes uses painful situations. He uses suffering to help us see what's really true. C.S. Lewis famously said it this way. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So what is the response to these people in this section. Let's go all the way down to chapter nine as we see these trumpets being sounded. What, what do the people do? The end of chapter nine, verses 20 and 21. It says the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, so two thirds of them, they did not repent of the works of their hands or give up worshiping demons or idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk, nor do they repent of their murders or their sorcery or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So God sends horrifying calamity. Again, just spend some time reading about the demon locusts. They're just freaky scary. God sends them intentionally to wake us up. Just like the church in chapter 3, Sardis, he's going, you seem like you're alive on the outside, but you're actually dead. And what does he say? You need to wake up. And God sends these trumpet blasts to wake us up to the truth, to say, come back to what's actually true. And what do the people do in the midst of that are still alive? They go, nah, I don't think that's true. Have you found yourself, those of you that are Christians, you have friends or family that you see in these types of situations? That God is either giving them over to their sin and it's just terrible, or he's executing a part of wickedness that he goes, I'm not going to let this happen anymore. And your friends and your family that don't follow Jesus, um, does it draw them closer to Jesus? They go, ah, actually it pushes them further away often. I go, ah, I don't know. I'm not believing that. I don't like that. And even for some of us that do follow Jesus, when God confronts our idols, we can sometimes run to those idols even more. And God in his mercy and his justice, do you hear his heart in this? He's going, no, don't follow that thing. Come back to me. Stay rooted in me. I'm helping you with this pain to see what's actually true. To whom are you bound when the trumpets sound? Because we see at the end of chapter 9, these people are just like Pharaoh. God sends in his kindness, even in, in the midst of it being gnarly and wicked and strange, like, like there's a kindness to come back to him. And just like Pharaoh, their hearts are hard and callous. I think it's a warning for us, not only our non-Christian friends or if you don't follow Jesus in the room, but even for us that follow Jesus, when we begin to continue to chase after our idols as God is giving us things in the midst of our pain to pay attention to, and we go, no, 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 I'm going to do it my own way, that that could make our heart even more callous and to pay attention to that. 
To whom are you bound when the trumpets sound, when God's judgment comes in pain? Some of us are bound to our idols that cannot save us in our time of need. In the midst of that, God is still kindly pursuing us. He's pursuing these people. We're going to see it at the end of chapter 11. He's still pursuing people, giving them opportunity to turn and come to him. He's trying to wake us up. The language of trumpets is used here that God is, I think, intentionally using. Like, uh, even as we think of trumpets, trumpets are still what is used to wake up the soldiers, the reveille. Right? That one, right? Like, it wakes up everybody. Is that how it goes? My military people are going, like, oh, you're terrible. So sometimes we think of trumpets, we think of like in a jazz band, like an instrument, like a brass instrument. But in the biblical times, they would have read this and understood like a trumpet was like a horn, like a sheep's horn. And the reason it was used was to make a public declaration about something. A public declaration about something. And the way that trumpets are typically used as we follow them through the biblical narrative, again, I think is helpful for us to understand. Just like we looked at seals last week, that seals are used for ownership in the culture. And that God, if he seals you by the power of his spirit, that you have ultimate protection, that you are a belonging of God. And that, uh, that helps us understand the, the language and the, sim, uh, uh, the symbols used here. What are trumpets doing? Trumpets Trumpets are primarily doing three things in the biblical text. Number one, trumpets are called to war. We see this in Jeremiah, or Job 39, Jeremiah 4, Judge 3. They're a call to war, a call to action, a public declaration. It's time to fight and go to the battle. Trumpets are also used as a public declaration to claim a new king or to claim a king. When there's a, a new king, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, when there is a new king, uh, we are proclaiming this truth, this declaration that this is the king that we will follow, this is the king that we will obey. And then this third reason trumpets are used in the scripture, in the biblical story, is a call to worship. It's Isaiah 27, 1 Chronicles 15, Psalm 150, among many other places. So the question for us, again, is to whom are you bound when the trumpets will sound? Do you realize that we are in a war? We talked about that last week, that we kind of walk in casually, but there's a battle for good and evil happening all around us, and these trumpets are meant to wake us up to that reality, that we wouldn't just rock to sleep in our consumerism and our comfort, but we would realize something is going on. There's a battle for your heart, your mind, your soul happening all the time, and these trumpets and these pains sometimes wake us up to that truth. There's a war going on. Trumpets are meant to proclaim a king. To whom are you bound when the trumpets sound? Are you bound to the true king, the slain lamb that we see in chapter 5? Jesus, are you bound to him? Are you wrapped up in him? Is your life consumed with him? Or are you bound to your idols that will continue to fall and fail you? And some of us, even Christians, man, man, it's hard to see the difference of those things. And things are happening in your life right now that are painful and they're confusing. And God in his love and his gentleness is saying, here's what I want to do with you. Would you open up your heart to me? Would you open up your mind to me? I know it's painful. I know it's disorienting. But I'm actually calling you back to me that you would follow me as the king. Not your reputation, not your money, not your family, the things we get wrapped up and we follow. You go, no, just follow me. 
So it's a call to war, it's a claim to a king, and then it is a call to worship. It's a call for us to witness and worship the true king that we see in chapter 4 and chapter 5. To whom are you bound when the trumpets will sound? Well, let's look at chapters 10 and 11 briefly, and I'm going to sum up chapter 10. And what happens here, we talked about this and we saw this last week if you were with us. Uh, uh, John is showing the execution of God's good judgment on a wicked world, even though it's crazy to read, like this is something that is good that's happening. And then what he does in the midst of it, he has this interlude. He shifts the camera angle and he goes, when all that's happening, what about God's people? What about people that are sealed? What about people that have surrendered to the Lamb? What about this army of Christians, of Christ's followers? What is going on with them? He's going to do that here. So we saw it in chapter 8 and 9 that this uh, judgment is coming out through these trumpets. And then he goes in 10 and 11, he goes, here's what's happening to God's people in the midst of that. So what happens in chapter 10 in this interlude is that John, if you, if you read the, the text, he, he sees an angel coming down from heaven described in an unbelievable way. And this angel is holding another scroll. And in the midst of it, this angel tells John that the seventh trumpet is going to be the final one and the mystery of God will be fulfilled by its sound. Then he tells John to, to take this scroll in his hand and he says, I want you to eat it. And it's a direct reference, again, the original hearers would have understood this, it's a direct reference to Ezekiel chapter 3. This is what happens to Ezekiel, to eat the scroll. And when we eat God's word, when we digest it, when we let it get in us, it changes us. But the hearers would have noticed something different in this text versus Ezekiel. Because in Ezekiel, it says, eat the scroll, and it will be sweet like honey to your tongue or to your taste. And that's what Ezekiel does. And here, uh, the angel says, eat this scroll. It'll be sweet like honey, but it'll also be bitter to your stomach. So the hearers would have gone, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, it's like Ezekiel, but it's not. Let me pay attention to what that means. And what I think John is trying to communicate through this narrative is that, man, it's going to be sweet as you digest the word, but because you live in a fallen world, persecution is going to be a part of this. As you witness, which we're going to see the next part of the text, as you witness and share and proclaim the truth of who God is, you're going to have opposition, even physical opposition to these witnesses to the point of their death. And what we're going to see is he continues on in chapter 11, and this angel gives John in the scroll two images. The first, he gives him a measuring tool, and he says, measure the temple. I want you to measure the temple and the courts and the outside courts, but you give those, the nations are going to take over those, but I want you to measure the inside of the courts. And so some people believe that's a physical temple that's going to be rebuilt. Some people think it actually means the church because the temple was the dwelling place of God. And in the New Testament, the church, us, as we're empowered by the Spirit, we're the dwelling place of God. Either way, you can interpret it both ways. Because the next um, thing that happens, the, the second image, is that um, God grants authority over these two witnesses. Now, again, there's a, a mass variety of how to interpret this. Some people think it's Elijah and Moses, physical people. They're coming back, and they're going to do work. And some people think, no, this is the church, because he calls them olive trees and lampstands. But then you go, well, why is there two of them if it's the church? That doesn't seem to make sense, but if you look back in Deuteronomy chapter 19 and Matthew 18, talking about witnesses in Deuteronomy 19, it goes, it's got to be two witnesses. If you come and bring something to somebody else and you're doing it by yourself, it's not going to have the correct charge. You need to bring somebody else to back your statement. And so some people believe that this is really the church. 
either way you interpret it, here's the point. The point is that God is sending prophets, he's sending people to share the truth about what is actually happening, to share the truth about God. And in the midst of it, this is what happens to these two witnesses. They're sharing the truth about God. And then verse 7 says, when they finished their testimony, a beast came up from a bottomless pit and conquered them and killed them. You go, well, that doesn't sound good. If we keep reading verses 9 through 13 of chapter 11, the story goes on. It says, for three and a half days, some of the peoples and the tribes and the languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in tombs. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry exchange presents because these two prophets had been tor uh, a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. Again, Q Genesis uh, one and two, as God breathes into Adam. Cue Ezekiel, the army of dead bones. That, that God's breath breathes into him. Cue Jesus being resurrected, the body uh, 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 that's dead is, is breathed in by God. This is what happens to these witnesses. And they stood on their feet, middle of verse 11, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Verse 12, and then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at the hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. To whom are you bound when the trumpets will sound? We are bound to the true king, the slain lamb. We have two things from this text. We have an ultimate protection, and we have an ultimate purpose. We have an ultimate protection. Uh, however you interpret these two witnesses, that, that uh, you go, well, wait, they weren't protected. They died. But no, they have an ultimate protection, not a temporary protection. And Christian, if you follow Jesus, do you know that you will have suffering in this world, in this life? Jesus says, if they tormented me, if they, if they came after me, they will come after you. And some of us buy into this version of Christianity that once we come to Jesus, everything's going to be rainbows and unicorns. And that's not the case. We live in a fallen world. And some of this justice, man, we're integrated with people that God's justice is coming out on them. And it's messy and it's hard and it's strange and it's confusing. And you will be persecuted, but you know you have an ultimate protection. Just like we see in these witnesses, that God ultimately protects them as he raises them back up and seats them at the right hand of the Father. There's an ultimate protection for us as Christians. There's also an ultimate purpose. Do you notice from the text that as God sends these plagues, injustice of the wicked, people do not respond and repent. But when do they respond and they repent? They respond and they repent when they see God's people witnessing to them even to the point of their death. That we're called as a church community, if you follow Jesus, the slain lamb, you are called to move into places that you will die for the good of others. And when you do that and a watching world sees that, they go, what is that? I'm curious about that. And for all of us that follow Jesus, because we live in a broken world, we have these little deaths all the time. We're dying to our reputation. We're dying to potential bonuses and money when we're doing the right thing in the midst of partners saying, no, do this. 
Some of us are involved in foster care and adoption. There's joy wrapped around that, but there is a death wrapped around that. And in the midst of us continuing to walk with Jesus, not killing our enemies, but letting our enemies kill us and trusting that God is going to raise us, there's a beauty to that. There's a purpose to that. That's when the people in this story turn and repent. When they see that happening. Do you know you have an ultimate protection? And do you know that you have an ultimate purpose in the midst of God's judgment getting poured out onto a wicked world? And this is how he finishes up the chapter, Revelation eleven fifteen. It says, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were a cloud of voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And then the rest of the chapter they worship. To whom are you bound when the trumpets will sound? Are you bound to your idols that we saw in verse 9, cannot see or hear or walk? Maybe you're bound to the idol of comfort and you're so concerned about avoiding pain and suffering that you, you don't understand your ultimate um, aim at telling people about Jesus because that's too confrontational like that ah that's too much and you're not obeying the spirit and you're 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 bowing your knee to the idol of comfort and you're bound to that or are you bound to the slain lamb you realize you have ultimate protection you have an ultimate purpose found in the person of jesus and that allows you to have hard conversations that allows you to move into spaces that don't seem to make sense to a watching world. That means you don't fight evil with evil. You go, no, I'm going to fight evil with love. I'm going to do my best to love you. I'm going to do my best to pray for you. I'm going to do my best to have honest conversations filled with grace. And, and your response to that conversation is not dictated to my well-being because my well-being lands at the cross and my protection that Jesus has for me. To whom are you bound when the trumpets will sound? Let's pray. Father, would you help us live out this truth in the midst of hard, hard circumstances and situations, not only to the people around us, but to us as well. Would you help us see our idolatry and turn from it? Thanks that you do lovingly come after us, even with pain at times. Would you help us see it and move from it? We ask that you would do it this morning. We pray it in your son's name. Amen. We're going to spend some time responding. If you're new with us, for the first time, we respond by singing what's true of this story. We're going to spend some time praying. We want to invite you to pray, whether it's in your seat or there's a prayer space to my right, your left. There's some cards. Uh, we would just invite you and encourage you. Maybe you want to write something down that you realize, man, I'm really bound to this thing, this person. God, I want to be unbound to them. Or that, I, I want to be bound only to you. I would just encourage you to write that person down, that situation down. Just put it in the prayer room. It's just between you and the Lord. We want this to be a space where you can pray. And then we're going to receive communion. Because as we think about these trumpets and we think about um, the call to war, the call to a king, and the call to worship, we find those three things at this table. When we come down and we're remembering that we are in a battle and the reason we can say yes and move forward is because that hydraulic press that crushes the terminator, that crushes evil is crushed at Jesus on the cross.
That's how God can be fully just and have full mercy because he pours all of his wrath out on wickedness on a perfect substitute, his son. And when you come to Jesus, you now have that protection because you exchange his perfect life for yours. As you repent and you go, man, I have been walking in my own power, in my own way, and I want to turn from that and I want to trust Jesus for my life. That's why we take communion to be reminded that we have a true king found in the person of Jesus. That we are in a battle that Jesus has already won and this calls us to worship. And so we come. Take a piece of bread, which represents his body. We dip it in juice, which represents his blood. And we're reminded of where our protection is and where our purpose is. And so we would invite you, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're washed by the blood of the lamb, you've given your life to him, we would invite you to remember as you come down, you take a piece of bread, which is going to be handed to you. Just hold your hands in a posture of humility and receiving. There's nothing you did There's nothing you did to receive this. It's all by the grace of God. And you are reminded that when God's judgment comes, whether it's your life or the life of the people you know, you are protected and you want to be bound to him and him alone. So the way we're going to do that is we're just going to go row by row if you're new with us. And your brother and sister will put a piece of bread in your hands as you hold it out. There's a gluten-free option in the middle if you have a need for that. If you're curious about why we do communion the way we do, I would just encourage you to read this card that's in front of you. It just talks about the tradition of the bread and the cup. Why do we do this every single week? If you find yourself going like, should I take communion, should I not? Take out this card and read it in the midst of our time together. I'm gonna pray one more time. There'll be some silence and then there'll be an invitation for you to move towards the element this morning. Father, be with us in our time of response. God, help us be bound only to you when your judgment comes. We ask that you would do it. We pray in your name. Amen.